This is the first week of our uh, series in Lent called Beautiful, and part of the reason that it's called Beautiful is because we are going to be uh, guided through this series with art that has been created by members of our congregation right here. So this is the first week, and Sean wrote that song for us, for our congregation this morning to kick off the Lent season and the season where we are uh, going to try to focus on God in new and creative ways. Maybe you were here yesterday at the Create event that was hosted here uh, where we encouraged people to worship God in a, in a new way, making a mess and meeting God in some ways and uh, to create something and tap into your creative energy as an act of worship. So I am so grateful uh, for Sean and all the other artists who are putting together uh, photographs and paintings and poetry to guide us through this Lent season. And I'm looking forward every week to sharing that art with you all uh, as part of what we are doing here. And every week, actually, uh, in the bulletin, there will be a copy of whatever that art is. If it's a song or a poem, there'll be the lyrics. And if it's a picture, a painting, something like that, you will get a copy of the art to take home. And on the back will be this, uh, the uh, passage that we are preaching out of that morning, which uh, kind of inspired the artists and what they created. I myself do not think of myself as an artist, and so I gave the most vague and general guidelines that I could to these beautiful people who create, you know, such wonderful things, and uh, they're doing really, really amazing work. Uh, Just a reminder, if you have questions at any point during the sermon today, this is a new thing that we're trying out, uh, where you can text your questions, and that number right there will be on every slide of the sermon. And if there's something in the passage or something in the in the uh, message that is sparking a question within you that you wonder if you could get more information on, if you could go deeper on, if uh, it's just something that you have a wondering about, seriously, feel free to text this number. I'm going to make a video that goes on Facebook on Tuesday where I try to talk through the questions. If there's an answer, I'll try to answer, Uh, but not every question has a simple, you know, black and white answer, and so I just want to talk through any of the questions that you might have. So I would encourage you, it's anonymous, I won't track you down, I promise, so ask your weirdest questions. It doesn't bother me uh, at all. So I want to get right into our text this morning, and uh, I I asked my wife if I should just show this or if I should, you know, explain it. Uh, I, like I, I've said a few times in the past few weeks, I don't feel like a super creative person, but as I thought about this series and I thought about using creativity as an act of worship, I realized that one thing that I do like to do is I like to put together digital uh, communication. So podcasts, audio, and video uh, editing is something that I really enjoy doing. It's kind of a hobby for me. And as I thought about this passage, I thought it would be a great way to communicate it Uh, by putting it to a video. So Rick, if you'll start that, this is going to be the scripture reading this morning. Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me, Jesus replied. The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. This is the word of the Lord. So recently, um, my daughter Eliza was in the hospital for a whole month. From January 6th to February 6th, we were in the hospital. She was in there for 30 uh, even days, which I felt like was a really long time. And when you're in the hospital for that long, time starts to bend a little bit. You, you lose track pretty quickly of what day it is, what day of the month it is, what time it is during the day, and you get a real warped sense of time and uh, regularity in schedule. And I was... Um, talking to my wife a little bit about this passage uh, for this morning, as I always talk to my wife about the sermons, lucky her. Uh, and I was talking to her about the fact that, you know, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And she said something that gave me, uh, I feel like, a new understanding and a new appreciation for what that meant. She said, that was longer than we were in the hospital with Eliza. 40 days is longer than we spent in the hospital. And I know that in those 30 days, I lost all uh, track of time. I lost all sense of uh, what was happening around me. I lost all sense of my location and my schedule. And I just thought going into the desert by yourself for 40 days would be even more intense than that when it comes to losing track of what's happening around you and losing track in some ways of who you are. 40 days in the wilderness away from society— 40 days in the wilderness without food, 40 days of silence and solitude. Those people that I work with will tell you I struggle with 40 seconds of silence and solitude. 40 days is uh, not going to happen for me. This is something that Jesus did, 40 days of silence and solitude. For 30 days in the hospital, we had three meals a day. We had friends and family coming in and out. We had community. We had phone calls and things like that. And it still seemed like it went on forever and ever. 40 days of fasting and solitude in the wilderness would have been such a draining experience. Jesus would have understood how many days had passed. Certainly he would have been counting. But any sense of time, any sense of community, any sense of, of anything else would have been slipping away from him after 40 days of solitude and fasting in the wilderness. He would have been drained physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. He would have been drained in every way that a person can be drained. And it's at that lowest point, at the end of these 40 days, it's at that point that Luke tells us Jesus begins to be tempted. At his lowest point that he probably will ever be at in his ministry on earth, Jesus is tempted by the devil. So the first temptation comes, and Jesus is tempted to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. 
Now, even though this seems like the easiest of the temptations to uh, ignore, it seems like the smallest stakes in some way that you would give yourself something to eat, it also is the most immediate temptation. Jesus was hungry. Again, 40 days without food, I can only imagine how hungry you would be. And so this temptation is very real. It's a very felt need in that moment, and it's a very immediate thing. It's an acute sense of hunger that Jesus is experiencing. And so the devil comes along and he tempts Jesus, turn the stone into a loaf of bread. But the thing about this temptation is that it's not really about food. I mean, it sounds like it's about food. It sounds like it's about stones and bread, but it's not really about food. What this first temptation really gets at is the temptation to shortcut God's plans. The temptation to shortcut and get around God's intended way of doing things. This is a temptation to say, this is the the path that God has placed me on, but instead I'm going to strike out on my own way. At the beginning of the passage, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to fast and pray. In that leading, and in Jesus' response to that leading, he was placing his dependency on the Father. When you decide to do something as extreme as fasting and solitude for 40 days, you are doing so with dependency on God. And so Jesus went out into the wilderness and decided that he would be sustained by the power of God alone. It was God's plan to bring Jesus into the wilderness for this time of preparation. And Jesus had decided and put his faith in God for his sustenance and everything that he needed. Had Jesus given in to the temptation to turn a stone into a loaf of bread, it wouldn't just have been about getting a quick meal. It would have been about saying that he needed something beyond what God could give. It would have been an an admission that Jesus needed something beyond what God could provide to him, that he didn't trust the Father to give him what he needed. And that's why Jesus doesn't respond to this question of turning a stone into a loaf of bread by saying, oh, but God told me I'm not supposed to eat anything, right? That's what Adam and Eve basically say in the garden at the beginning of Scripture is uh, they say, well, God told us not to do that or we would die. They come up with this reason uh, that's not based on faith so much as it's based on following a rule. But Jesus doesn't say to the devil, oh, well, God told me not to eat for these 40 days, so I, I just couldn't do that. What he says is, Man does not live by bread alone. He says, the sustenance that I need is beyond earthly food. The sustenance that I need is beyond bread. What man needs is God. What man needs are the very words of God. And in doing that, in responding in that way, Jesus refused to take the shortcut to sustenance that the devil was offering him. And instead, he held steadfast to his faith and trust in the Father to see him through the trials and the temptations that he was facing in that moment. And I think it's easy to think, well, of course he did that because he's Jesus. And that's obviously something that Jesus can do because Jesus is God. We're raised to understand and know if you go to church that Jesus is fully God. And so you think, of course, Jesus could withstand that temptation. But it's important to also remember that Jesus was fully human. In this moment, Jesus feels the same feelings that we feel. He hungers the same way that we hunger. And yet Jesus said, this is not about just not eating because God told me not to eat. This is about a deeper truth, a truth about who God is and what I need to live. And Jesus was very strongly saying that he was going to place 
his faith in God. So Jesus passes the first test. And so the devil ups the ante. If the way to Jesus isn't through his stomach, right? As the old saying goes, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. If the way to Jesus' heart isn't through his stomach, maybe it will go through his ego. That's what the devil thinks. And so uh, Luke says that Jesus is taken up to a high place and shown all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. This is some type of vision that somehow Jesus has where he can see laid out in front of him all the kingdoms of the world, whatever that means, these governments, these, these cities, these territories, whatever that means. And he's taken up and he sees them all in a moment of time. And the devil says, I will give these to you if you worship me. All the power, all the authority, it will all be yours if you just worship me. Uh, I remember when my wife and I bought our first house, uh, we were so young and full of naivety. It's w- such a wonderful time of life. Um, and we, we were going to buy this house. And finding your first house is a, a wonderful experience. Uh, I hope everybody gets to do it at some point because you're looking around and you're dreaming about all the fun life that you're going to put into these walls, right? Like you just want to find this place where you can like grow your family and you can like move forward with your life. And it's this fun feeling. And, and you find a place and then, uh, and then you, uh, you start to, you know, you go to the bank and you get pre-approved for a loan. And if you're like me, you just sign, you know, whatever, you know, uh, 8% interest. What's the problem? Uh, and so, no, we didn't pay 8%. But you, you do all these things and because really you're focused on the fun of the house. You're packing your bags and you're dreaming about moving into your house. And then you sit down on closing day and you think, I'm going to own a house, man. Like, today is the day that I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to put my name on this paper. And then they show you the paper and you think, I'm not buying a house. I don't own this house. The bank for sure owns this house. Like, and if I ever own this house, I will have paid three times as much as I said I was going to pay for this house. Like, the bank... The bank owns the house, for sure. Uh, And that takes the wind out of your sails a little, but you just try not to think about it. Um, This is a troubling passage, I think, because the devil says he has authority over all the kingdoms of the world, and nobody disagrees with him. Like, he says it, and Jesus doesn't say, no, you don't. I do already. Jesus doesn't say that at all. In fact, the, uh, the Gospels, all of the, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story, and none of the Gospel authors disagree with what Satan says in this passage, that he has authority and dominion over all of the kingdoms of the world. That's kind of scary. That's troubling in some ways. The kingdoms of the world are the house, and the devil is the bank. If you're a banker, this is just an, an allegory, okay? I'm not mad at you, okay? But in this allegory, right... The kingdoms of the world are the house, and the devil is the bank. He has the deed. We might think that the power and the kingdoms belong to us. We might think that we have control over the governments and over the systems and things like that. But ultimately, there's something else behind all of it. So a theologian that I like in a church historian named Justo Gonzalez says it like this, and this is uh, not a rosy picture. He says, we may not think in terms of the devil ruling the rulers, but there is no doubt that there is a power of evil over all human power. When Luke claims that the devil has the power to grant all the kingdoms of the earth, he is acknowledging what we can see 
by simply reading the newspapers. The thing that we can see when we read the newspapers is that things are broken. There's something wrong. Here, there, and everywhere, the systems of power are corrupted, right? There's evil uh, behind the scenes on all of these things. That's pretty dark stuff. It's daylight savings time, but the sermon's dark, okay? Um, But again, this temptation is telling a deeper story. There's a deeper reality that this temptation is getting to. In the first temptation, Jesus was tempted to bypass his faith that God would sustain him in order to take care of himself. In the first temptation, right, he's, he's, he's given the opportunity to give himself sustenance instead of looking to God to sustain him. In the second temptation, Jesus is being tempted to shortcut God's plans for winning victory over the power of evil and instead take an easier path to glory. Because what the devil offers here in this temptation is something that will already ultimately belong to Jesus. The temptation is not to claim authority all over all of the kingdoms of the world because we see in Scripture over and over and over again that those ultimately will belong to Jesus in the end. Every Christmas we read the, sto- uh, the passage in Isaiah that talks about the government will be on his shoulders. The power and authority over the kingdoms of the world will rest in Jesus' hands. This is something that he will have anyway. The temptation is not to have the authority, but is to shortcut the process by which the authority will come. Because what really grants Jesus the authority is his life, death, and resurrection. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that paid the mortgage on the world and gave us the power to live as people who know that Jesus holds the deed. To live as people who know that the the victory is already won, even if we have to live in the messy middle right now. We know the story. We know how it ends. We know that Jesus has paid the mortgage on the world, and he ultimately will hold the deed. So the devil is not taking something that Jesus won't have, but instead he's saying to Jesus, again, don't trust the plan that God has for you. Don't trust the plan that God has for the world. Instead, trust me. In the wilderness, Jesus doesn't reject the idea that the devil has control at the moment, but instead he asserts that true authority comes from worshiping God and God alone. He says, I can't worship you, Satan, because all of my allegiance is already given over to God, and this authority will be mine, but I will do it in God's way. So there's a story in the book of Judges about a guy uh, named Gideon, and Gideon is a, was a pretty good dude. Uh, he was picked by God to be one of the judges of Israel. He had some problems. All the Bible characters have problems. Gideon, no exception. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Gideon is that uh, they wanted to make him king, and he said, no, I'm not the king. I'm not the king. I can't be the king. And then he named his son Abimelech, which means my dad is the king. So that's weird. Um, so Gideon, is a, he's a guy. He's normal, I guess is what I'm saying. He's a guy. But there's a story about Gideon where God wants Gideon to do something that Gideon for sure does not want to do. And so he's like, I got a plan. I'm going to say, God, if you really want me to do that, I'm going to lay a blanket out tonight on the ground. And if in the morning there's no dew on the ground, but the blanket is wet, then I'll know that you want me to do it. Okay? So Gideon goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning. Lo and behold, the blanket sopping wet. And the ground is bone dry. You would think that Gideon would be like, I get it. 
Gideon for sure does not get it. He actually says, all right, all right, all right, but let's just to be sure, let's reverse it this time. And uh, this, this time, let's let the blanket be dry and all the ground be wet. And so they, you know, he goes to bed, and lo and behold, in the morning he wakes up, and that's the situation that he finds. When you tell a kid this story, they think, this is how I'm going to figure stuff out in my life. And they always, uh, they always do it the wrong way. So when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to set this full glass of water on my dresser. And if it's still full in the morning, God wants me to be rich and famous. Do you know what I mean? If it's still full in the morning, Jesus, then I am supposed to be rich and famous. Kids uh, took the wrong lesson from that. If you read this passage today, you'll see that Gideon's not really a role model when it comes to testing God, because that's the, the third temptation. The third temptation that Jesus has to go through is about testing God. And this temptation is basically the devil saying, if you are really the Son of God, prove it. You talk a big game about who you are, Jesus, but let's see you do it. Throw yourself off the temple, because if you are the Son of God, the angels show up, and they'll catch you, and nothing bad will happen to you at all. Put your money where your mouth is. If you really are who you say you are, prove it. Where, where the first two temptations really got at how much did Jesus trust the Father? They were temptations about could Jesus follow the Father even when it seemed like a dicey proposition. This temptation really gets at Jesus' identity. This is about the core of who Jesus was and what he came to do. The devil is trying to put Jesus into a corner. Throw yourself off the temple to prove it, and you'll give in to the temptation. Refuse to throw yourself off the, tempta- uh, the temple, and it looks like you're probably not who you say you really are. But Jesus' response evades the trap. He says, scriptures say, don't put God to the test. The devil quotes some scripture to him, and Jesus quotes some scripture right back. He says, don't put God to the test. Jesus is so secure in his identity as the Son of God that he has nothing to prove to himself or anyone else. He knows who he is. And so his response is simple. You're not supposed to test God. Don't test God. He can turn the tables of the argument back against the tempter and reject the idea that his identity can be defined by anyone or anything other than God himself. And so there it is. Just as quickly as it began, the three temptations are over. Jesus wins round one. At the end, it says the devil left until another time came, an opportune time. And uh, the devil shows back up in the picture at the, at the moment of Jesus' passion and crucifixion. But for now, Jesus has won the battle. All that time and all that hunger and all that temptation is done. Jesus can come back from the wilderness and begin his ministry. And I can't help but wonder, why did this happen in the first place? I mean, we take it for granted, right? We, we read the story and we think, okay, that's the thing that happened and then we move on. But, but I wanted to get to the uh, deeper question of why did this happen? Why is this a thing that had to happen to Jesus? At the beginning of the passage, Luke says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It is God who sends Jesus into the wilderness for these 40 days, but for what reason? 
Well, as I studied and as I read, it looks like uh, the reason was that it was a time of preparation for Jesus' ministry. Just before the story of the wilderness temptation, there, there's a story about Jesus' baptism. He's in the Jordan River. That's how this passage started, right? Jesus goes from the Jordan into the wilderness. And a lot of times when we read the story of the baptism of Jesus, we say, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This baptism, Jesus goes down in the water, he comes back up, it says the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And this, right, launches Jesus' ministry. But that's not quite right. Because what it really does is it launches Jesus into this wilderness time. He has to be prepared for what happens next. Throughout Scripture, there's a motif, that's a good word, of preparation in the wilderness. This is a thing that happens a lot. Uh, Moses leaves Egypt and goes to the desert, goes to the wilderness, and and is prepared then uh, by God to go back into Egypt to lead the captives out of exile. Elijah, there's a scene where Elijah uh, has to go to the mountain. He goes to the wilderness, and there he meets God and is filled back up for mission so that he can go back out and do what God wants him to do. In the New Testament, at the beginning of Galatians, which we just got done doing a series in, Paul actually says that after his conversion, he was led out into the desert. He says, I spent three years in the wilderness, in the desert, being prepared by God for my ministry. This is a motif that shows up again and again and again in Scripture. And so it was with Jesus. As he was about to begin his ministry, that he was led to the wilderness to prepare for what would come next. He needed to commune with the Father in order to receive what he needed to go about his ministry over the next three years. Jesus needed a time of preparation in order to be ready for his ministry. And as I thought about that, as I thought about the idea that Jesus, who was God, needed time with the Father, who is God, to prepare for ministry, I found myself resisting the idea a little bit. I find myself resisting the idea that Jesus needed a time of preparation. Because it means that I probably need some times of preparation. And I want to resist the idea that I need anything more than what I have right now to do the work that God has called me to do. And I wanted to resist the idea that there would be any trials or temptations that I would go through that would be part of the refining process in me that would prepare me to do the work that God would have me do. I found myself thinking about the shortcuts that Jesus was offered in the wilderness. And I found myself thinking about the ways that I avoid pain whenever possible. How I will take the shortcut. You give me a shortcut around pain, you better believe I'm taking it at 90 miles an hour. I'm trying to get around this stuff. I'm going to go for the shortcut. The way that I will shortcut the hard work of process and just want to focus on the outcomes. I'm about outcomes, baby, okay? I don't want to talk about process, Let's talk about outcomes. We're going to get somewhere together. How are we going to get there? Don't worry. We're going to get there. Talking about outcomes. I want to look at outcomes. I'm always looking for the finish line to avoid the struggle of the race. But what this story shows so clearly, and what the season of Lent invites us into, is to live into the spaces where we need God the most. To live into the spaces where only God can sustain us. 
to live into the ways that we are frail and in need of assistance, to live into the process, to live into the pain, to live into the place where God is using what we're going through to prepare us for something ahead of us. God does not do the tempting in this story. God is not the tempter. He doesn't come and bring the temptation to Jesus. And in our lives, God does not bring the temptations to us either. But he is always present in the process and the pain. And he's always preparing us for something beyond what we can see in the moment. There are some of you here this morning who are right in the middle of the process and the pain. If there was a shortcut to take out of it, you would take the shortcut. That's how I am. If there was a way to get out of it, you would take the shortcut. And I understand that listening to the pastor stand up right now and tell you to live into the space where you need to depend on God sounds tinny and hollow. It sounds like the last thing you want to hear. I know that as I was spending 30 days in the hospital, it was the last thing I wanted somebody to tell me. Just live into the space where you only need God. There are some of you here who are struggling against anxiety and depression. There are some of you who are battling against addiction. There are people here whose families seem like they're falling apart. Their marriages are breaking up right in front of them. You're in these situations, and me standing here and telling you to live into these places, and that the season of Lent is inviting you into these places where only God can sustain you, uh, it might make you angry. It would probably make me a little angry. But this morning, I'm not saying that you need to toughen up or that you need to have more faith. That if you just had a little more faith, you could do it. I'm not saying toughen up or have more faith. What I'm telling you is that God is right there with you, preparing you for a work that he has laid out in front of you. He has a plan for you. He has a plan to use you to bring hope and love and peace and restoration to people around you. And you probably can't feel it right now. If you had a stone in your pocket, you might throw it at me for saying it. But I promise you that God does never, not ever let a moment of pain or suffering or a second in the wilderness or a temptation that comes to us, God never lets those things be in vain. He has a plan to use those things for your good and for the good of those around you. He has never seen a wilderness that is too big or too hopeless for him to move in. And he's moving in you this morning. There are those of us here who are on the other side of a wilderness. Who've gone through something. And the invitation for us this morning is to open our eyes and see, where is God calling us to now? How is God about to use that thing that we couldn't imagine had good in it to do a good work that he's already set out in advance? Are our eyes open to the places where God is going to move us? And then there's the lucky few here this morning who are not in it just now. And I wish that my sermon was, and you won't be in it 
Congratulations, go in peace. But life comes for all of us. Life comes for every single person in this room. And my prayer for those of you who have not yet entered into that space or, or who are so far distant from a space like that, that that you don't remember the work that God did in, it, in you, that you would be prepared when the time comes. Not that you'll like it. Not that it'll be easy. But that somehow in the face of all of that, you can sing out as we sang in the song today, Hallelujah. You are God. I've said it before, but it always bears repeating. God is in the business of turning pain into something beautiful. And there's no better season to reflect on that truth than the Lenten season that we have all entered into together. As we reflect on the pain Christ endured so that we could be called sons and daughters of God, so that the ultimate sacrifice could lead to the ultimate victory where we can be friends of God and part of his family. This is the season to reflect on God making broken things beautiful. I believe that God has plans for your pain this morning. I've seen in my own life how God uses the wilderness to prepare us for something greater. I pray that we would have open eyes to see where he is making broken things beautiful. Let's pray. Father God, it is easier said than done to have faith that you work something good out of the wilderness. And in the middle of the wilderness is the hardest place of all, God, to, to sit in all of that and say, God, you are doing something in this. God, that you don't do it to us. You don't, you don't press those temptations and those trials down on top of us. You are a loving God who wants good things for us. But God, we live here in a broken world. And as we deal with the brokenness all around us, God, you don't let any of it come back void. You don't let any of that pain be for nothing. You use it, the broken pieces and the pain, and you put them back together and make them into something beautiful. You give us something to take out with us into the world so we can share your love and your hope and your peace. God, I pray that we would look for those places. God, I pray your comfort on those who are in the middle of it right now because you do give comfort in the middle of that affliction. And I pray that you would lead all of us and guide all of us to see the ways that you are taking the pain in our past or even the pain in our present and turning it into something beautiful in your future, God. Help us live in your future. God, we love you. We don't understand you. If we did, there'd be no point to this. But we have faith and hope, God, that you love us. May that be the faith and hope that takes us out this week. I pray this in your name. Amen.